0: Hello, and this is Mrs B in Economic Central. This is the second Year 10 podcast to help the Year 10s prepare for their second assessment of 2021. This time we're doing an assessment on the reasons why the government directly intervenes in the economy. So the last assessment was looking at uh, the macroeconomy and how we measure how it grows and how it shrinks via the circular flow of income and some key economic indicators now we're going to have a look at how the government actually directly intervenes to improve the situation so you'll all remember that we had ras as our little way of remembering the uh, three roles of the government in intervening into the gov- into the economy r was for redistributive so to distribute income to ensure there's equity in our society Allocative was to allocate resources, remembering our resources are scarce, so it's really important that they're allocated efficiently and effectively. And stabilisation to stabilise the economy. So instead of having those big ups and downs that used to happen uh, sort of the 1900s to about the 1950s, 1960s, we've now learned to stabilise our economy so we don't have big booms and big busts and life is much more pleasant in the interim period. So let's look, first of all, at the redistributive role of government. So this is the role where we decide to redistribute uh, income from the richest down to the least well-off in society to ensure that things are a little more equitable. So the first thing the government has to do in order to do this is to find out how equitably our income and our wealth is currently distributed across the population. And to do this, they use what we call a Lorenz Curve. So the Lorenz curve is a graphical representation of the distribution of income within the economy or across the population. So what it does is it looks at the percentage of income earned by each group in society. So we call it a cumulative because we keep adding on the percentages. So the cumulative percentage of income earned by the cumulative percentage of households. So if all households receive the same percentage of the total income in the economy, the Lorenz curve would would be what we call a perfect line of equality. So everything would be exactly equal. But of course, in the real world, that isn't what actually uh, occurs. So we have what we call a bode Lorenz curve, which moves away from that 45 degree line of perfect equity to our actual Lorenz curve. And we measure the difference between that line of equality and our Lorenz curve, and we measure that area, and we call it the Gini coefficient. Now, as you know, you don't need to be, to be able to calculate that at the moment, but you need to know what the number means, because it's very significant in terms of inequality and equality. So the nearer the number is to zero, that means it's a line, that's the nearer it is to equality. The nearer the line goes towards One means that is the line of inequality. So one household will have all the income. So you want to be somewhere nearer to zero. So the actual number of the Gini coefficient, as I've said, is very important. And the nearer to zero it becomes, the more equitable the distribution of our income is. So currently, the Gini coefficient in Australia is around 0.33 or 0.34. It did go up quite a, quite significantly during the mining boom, as people directly employed in mining got high, much higher wages and a lot of other people did not. And it's now come back to being a lot more equitable. Other examples of countries, to give you a different mix, 0.65 is the Gini coefficient for South Africa, which is a fairly inequitable country, which uh, many of you will be probably aware of and of, aware of some of the crime and uh, problems they have in society as a consequence of that inequality. And a very equitable country is Denmark, who have a Gini coefficient of 0.25. Now, don't forget to check the uh, PowerPoint on how to do your own Lorenz Curve. There's an example on there of how you can um, actually construct your own Lorenz Curve in your own classroom. So don't forget to have a look. So once we've got that Gini coefficient and we've got our Lorenz curve, we can then start to look at redistributing it. So the government has four ways that they do this. The first of this is welfare benefits. So the government provides a variety of benefits to various people in society to improve the quality of their life and to also ensure an equitable distribution of income. So an example of this would be JobKeeper sorry job seeker to people who have lost their jobs so the government makes a payment to those people until such times as they can find new employment the second means the government has of redistributing income is through our progressive income tax system so this means that someone who earns more pays a greater proportion of their income in tax so they they have various tax brackets where the tax percentage increases as you move up the tax brackets. So for example, if you earn in 19,000, you won't pay any tax at all. But if you get up to, uh, I think it's about 180,000, you'll start to pay a significant amount in the, and in the top tax bracket, you'll be paying in excess of 40% of your income in taxes. So the government then takes the taxes and redistributes them via the welfare payments to those less well-off in society. So income tax is an example of a progressive tax. The next uh, thing that the government does is the provision of essential services. So there's a variety of services in our economy that are provided directly by the government that would not be provided in some instances by the private sector or wouldn't be provided for everybody free of charge. So examples are things like education, hospitals, GPs, roads, public transports, Parks, recreation facilities, libraries. So the reason the government does this is it provides everybody, regardless of their income, the access to facilities that enables them to improve the quality of their lives. So the provision of essential services and the provision of public goods is another example of the government redistributing income across society to make things fairer. And the last way that the government redistributes income is via a compulsory superannuation scheme. So this means that everybody has money paid into their superannuation fund so that they can enjoy a better income in retirement. So currently, if you're employed, that your employer has to pay 9.5% of an individual's wage or salary into their super fund. So you can choose a super fund of your choice or your employer will uh, can choose one for you if, if you don't want to do that. Now the reason for this is so that when I, I and others retire we've got a whole pot of money that we can use as a source of income to enjoy when we retire because if we were to rely totally on a state pension the pension will be very low and therefore our quality of life will not be very high either. Now the government is planning to increase this percentage from 9.5% up to about 12% over the next few years to ensure that with an ageing population as we have in Australia that people have a better quality of life in their retirement. So that essentially is what the government does in its redistributive role so let's have a look now at the second role which is the allocative role which is the reallocation of resources now we know that we have scarce resources because that's the economic problem how to how to um satisfy as many needs and wants as we can with our limited or scarce resources now Most people believe markets are efficient and they are the answer to allocating resources efficiently and effectively. However, there are some instances where market inefficiencies or market failure exist. And so, therefore, the government has to step in. Now, these can be the market producing socially undesirable items. It can be that the market isn't producing enough socially desirable goods. It could be that goods and services that the private sector doesn't provide at all and we call those public goods such as parks. And it could be that the, the market doesn't equitably allocate resources, so they are efficiently allocated, but it isn't equitable. So in this instance, the government actually steps in and does something about it. Now, the biggest uh, example that we've got of this is where we have market failure. And the example of market failure that we have studied is called an externality. Now, externalities occur when producing or consuming a good has an impact on a third party, somebody who is not directly involved in the economic transaction taking place. So they can be positive and they can be negative. So a good example of a negative externality is me driving along happily in my little picanto, and I face the private costs of buying petrol, But I don't have to pay the negative costs for driving my car and the cost that that imposes on other people in terms of increased congestion and increased pollution. So I, by driving my Picanto, I'm paying the cost of running it, but I'm actually imposing a cost on other third parties who are not directly involved. So the problem is that with externalities is that we don't consider them when we make economic decisions. So for example, I enjoy eating a chocolate muffin for my breakfast every day, but I don't take into account the externalities to the healthcare system if I keep eating too many muffins and I end up having to be treated for diabetes later in my life. So as I said before, there are two types of externality. There's an externality, a negative externality when the cost, the social cost, is greater than the social benefit. And this occurs when we overconsume or we overproduce. So what we want to do here is to reduce consumption or to reduce production of these types of goods. Examples of negative externalities include smoking cigarettes, pollution of the environment by factories, noise by your neighbors, litter waste. There's a whole raft of negative externalities that go on in everyday life if you sit back and think about it. The second type of externality is a positive externality. And this occurs when we under-consume or underproduce. produce So we don't take into account the social benefits of consuming or producing the good. So we want, in this instance, to increase consumption or increase production. Good examples of uh, positive, consu- positive externalities are university education, the benefit to society of people being educated, vaccinations, beekeeping is also a good example of a production positive externality because the bees not only produce honey, they also pollinate all the fruit trees round and about. So the key terminology we need to be mindful of in our externalities is the private cost. So that's the expenditure by producers in creating output and the costs incurred by consumers by acquiring goods and services. The private benefits, these are the profits made by producers in selling goods and services in the market and the benefit gained by consumers from the consumption of goods and services to satisfy their needs and wants. Social cost, the total cost of producing a good or service including both private cost and any additional cost imposed on society as a result of a private transaction. And the social benefit, which is the total benefit from consuming a good or service, including both the private benefit plus any positive spillover effects as a result of a private transaction. So in the case of a negative externality, the government wants to see consumption fall or production fall. So what they do there is they actually tax the activity. So if you think about, um, if you, if about cigarettes, we tax them highly to reduce consumption. The government can also put taxes on uh, firms that pollute the environment to pay for the pollution to be put right. They can put market restrictions in place, fine bad behavior. So there's a whole raft of fines and taxes that the government will introduce to get rid of a negative externality. In the case of a positive externality, we actually want to see more consumption of these goods and more production. So in this instance, we want to do what we call internalizing that externality into the market. And in order to do that, the government subsidizes these production and consumption activities. Now, a subsidy is an amount of money from the government, either to an individual or to affirm, to reduce the cost of something, so to make it more attractive. So in the case of a positive consumption externality going to university, the government gives to the university a sum of money when you enroll to do your economics degree so that the cost to you is less than the true cost. So for example, the true cost might be $20,000 a year, which not many people are prepared or able to pay. And so the government puts in about $10,000 and you then pay the remaining 10. So it halves the cost to you and therefore makes university more attractive and therefore more people go, which is the socially desirable position. So externalities can be positive and they can be negative. Positive externalities are something to be encouraged, negative externalities are something we want to actually get rid of. So that takes us on to our third role, the stabilisation of the economy role. Now, this is regulating the amount of economic activity and the speed at which we are performing, the speed at which we're growing. If we grow too fast, it becomes unsustainable, we get very high inflation, and we end up going from a boom to a bust. If we're not growing quick enough, which was what happened in 2020, unemployment, cyclical unemployment starts to really get going. And that causes all sorts of issues for the government. They start to receive less tax revenue and they have to pay out more in welfare payments. So they start to go into a budget deficit. And there's a lot of heartache and pain for those people who've actually lost their jobs. So the government get we need, first of all, to think about the government's going to intervene into the economy. They need to get their money from somewhere because, of course, the government doesn't have any money until it receives tax revenue from taxpayers like myself. So its biggest contribution of revenue is from income tax. Okay, that's roughly about 46 percent of government revenue comes from income tax. The next biggest source is Company taxes, profits on company taxes, which is around 19% of uh, total revenue. GST contributes about 14%. And then there's a whole raft of other taxes and revenues that the government receives. But the big three are income tax, uh, company profit tax, and sales tax. That's where the government's getting most of its money. Now, in terms of then where it spends it, Social security and welfare is around 42% of the government budget each year. We have about 16% spent on health, about 7 on education, and about 6% on defence. So the big expenditure of our government is in our welfare payments, which is back to the role of redistributing income um, and possibly contributes towards our, our relatively low Gini coefficient of 033 So in terms of what the government can do, if they're gonna directly intervene to stabilize the economy, they're using what we call a fiscal policy. Now fiscal policy is direct intervention by the government into the economy by using taxes and government spending. So if we're growing too quickly, we need a contractionary fiscal policy to slow our economy down. So to do that, we can either increase our taxes and or reduce our government spending. Now, both of those are actually quite difficult to achieve in reality. It takes a long time to increase taxes. They're not very popular for a whole raft of reasons. Um, And so not many governments want to get involved in increasing taxation. Reducing government spending equally has problems because a lot of government spending is day-to-day spending, paying for people like me and all the other government departments that have to be run. And any projects the government has spent money on, like building the hub, for example, at Shenton College, you know, expanding the Quinana Freeway, they are actually projects that if you stop them halfway through to reduce spending, you, you've effectively wasted all the money that you spent in the first place. So reducing government spending and increasing taxes is actually quite tricky, which is why if you're in a boom, and you're growing too quickly. And by growing too quickly, I mean above our target range of 3.5%, inflation above our target of 2 to 3%, and unemployment below our target of 4.5%. So the economy is really going great guns. If you're in that situation, a contractionary fiscal policy isn't particularly effective. So what tends to happen then is that the RBA, the Reserve Bank of Australia, our central bank, steps in with what we call monetary policy, and they increase the interest. Rates so that people have to spend more on their outstanding loans, which reduces the amount of money they've got to spend and therefore cools the economy down. Now, if the economy isn't growing fast enough, which was the case in 2020, which I'm going to come back to in a moment, the government then needs to stimulate the economy, and we call that an expansionary fiscal policy. So, in this case, the government can reduce its taxes and or increase government spending. Now, increasing government spending has a direct and immediate impact on the economy because what it does is it creates jobs. And if you create jobs, what you do then is you give people income. And with that income, they can start to spend and spending then helps the economy grow. And at the same time, government revenue starts to increase from all the taxes. And then we start to get less money being spent on welfare. So, all in all, everybody wins. Now, this is what the government was doing last year, actually a combination of reducing taxes and increasing spending. So, it brought forward a reduction in income tax. So, it made the tax brackets bigger, and reduce the amount of tax you paid in each bracket so that people started to get about $2,000 more in their pocket every year than they did previously. And the idea was that people would hopefully go out and spend the money to stimulate the economy and get us growing again. At the same time, the government brought forward lots of spending on big projects like uh, infrastructure, improving roads, building new ports. Uh, things at airports, all sorts of big projects. The government brought those forward to create jobs. It also spent lots of money on things like JobKeeper to keep people employed while businesses got back to work after the lockdown and incentivising businesses to take on young people as apprenticeships in a job maker scheme. So there was lots and lots of expenditure last year and it resulted in about $300 billion worth of borrowing on the government's part to get the economy going again, which largely it has achieved, and the economy is indeed growing again. Unemployment starting to fall. It's now down to 5.8% from a height of 7.5% right in the middle of 2020. Growth is getting positive again, and our inflation is starting to rise. So we're heading back towards where we'd like to be. And just another couple of things to talk about with regards to intervention, one being productivity policy. So I've talked about fiscal policy, which is to improve the demand side of the economy by taxation and government spending. The government can also look at what we call productivity, so being more efficient with our scarce resources. And productivity rises means that we're able to produce more with those resources so we can grow, but we won't have that nasty thing called inflation hitting us. So they include things like improving education, improving uh, research and development at universities so that we become more innovative and improve technology, looking at taxation reform or reducing trade union power. So there's a variety of different productivity policies the government can bring in, but they're not terribly popular because they take a long time and they usually tend to upset one party in society and uh, so usually governments stay well clear of productivity productivity but it is an important part of managing the economy. So that, in a nutshell, is the three different roles of the government directly intervening into the economy. So just to remind you, redistributive role, allocating money from the richest down to the poor, Allocative role, ensuring that our resources are allocated in the best way possible for socially desirable outcomes as well as efficiency. And the third thing, stabilising the economy and making sure that we grow at a steady and sustainable rate with low inflation and low unemployment. So hopefully that's helped you in your preparation for our test. And any questions, please see me in class. Bye for now.